0: Wait a minute. Have you heard the strange and unusual stories of the Forgotten News Podcast? Hello,
1: everyone. This is Jim.
0: This is Kit Karen. We
1: host the Forgotten News Podcast.
0: On our show, we tell true stories from history, but not the stories you learned in school.
1: We tell stories that are obscure.
0: Mysterious. Weird wild.
1: For example,
0: the teenage girl who committed the last stagecoach robbery in the United States in 1899. The really dumb gang of crooks who unintentionally kidnapped the lieutenant governor of Idaho in 1929. The group of old ladies in 1893
2: who would secretly go out at midnight to castrate cats and then, um, speed up their journey to heaven. The farmer who vanished into thin air in front of witnesses, as he simply walked across his empty dirt yard in 1889.
0: So, on any given episode, our stories might be serious, silly, or sad. But they will always be a true story. So now you know pretty much everything about what to expect on the Forgotten News Podcast.
1: We think you'll like it.
0: Thank you for listening.
2: I saw it on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater, as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, this is a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. A little background thrown in on the actors, some information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of the plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, subscribe, give us a favorable review. We're continuing our August theme, The Awkward... Wait, what? And that's our selection of some great head-scratching cult classics that make you pause and hopefully run out to your local purveyor of video media to take in all the bizarre happenings. This week, we are going for the gold with the canon-produced, Olympic gymnast-helmed action romp that is 1985's Gymkata. Join us! Now, I will freely admit I was a latecomer when it came to this film. I didn't see *Jim Gymkata until I was well into my college career when I went and rented it from the local mom-and-pop video store. And I have to say, as a solo experience in my dorm room back in the day, I actually very much enjoyed it. I found it fun and didn't give it a ton of thought, at, you know, at least not back in the day. It would only be later as the years went on that I would realize how much this film was sort of an unofficial code, shorthand for film buffs who grew up seeing it on deep cable loops throughout the late 80s and the early 90s. It was a smiling wink for those who were in the know and who had seen it to be able to get together and share a laugh and marvel over its lunacy. So why don't we just get down to it? As I discussed previously, Canon Films as a studio looms large for the video store kid. They were an indelible presence in the late 80s, and anybody who would try to argue different should be held down and have horrific things done to them with a still icy pudding pop. Canon will get its due in a full workup from us one of these days on this show, especially since the dissolving of the partnership and the recent competing documentaries that came out charting their rise and fall. They're just too interesting and too juicy of a subject not to focus on in the near future. But, for sake of argument, this week's offering is a canon deep cut. A cult classic, midnight special, cable-repeated classic that garnered a life of its own on both VHS and with multiple plays on premium channels of the 80s. At its core, it's a survival action film, very similar to other cult offerings where men are hunted in a competition of sort. You know, 1982's Turkey Shoot or 1987's Running Man, both fall into the same category. But in this case, it doesn't just match their silliness, nor have the same extent of gore. No, this is a serious attempt to make an action martial arts film that is, yeah, violent, but it was going to be a, quote, real picture. At least, it was going to attempt to be. How well it succeeded in that remains even to this day to be seen. For my money, I can tell you, I'm covering it. for starters, if we really want to get to the bottom of this film, we need to understand just who its subject matter was. Kurt Below Thomas was born March 29, 1956 in Miami, Florida. Thomas himself actually had a rather tough childhood. His father died in a car accident when young Kurt was only seven, which left his mother to raise him and his three other siblings alone. Kurt ended up growing up in a poverty-stricken neighborhood in Miami. Short for his age, his mother was worried that he was suffering from some sort of illness, and when he was a child, she was concerned he would never completely grow. Now, he did. He eventually attained an adult height of being 5'5", but his mother continued to worry about both his weight and his health pretty much his entire childhood. Like many children who have endured hardships and were attempting to overcome added adversity, the being on the shorter side seemed to add sort of an extra fire, and young Kurt had a large chip on his shoulder. He had something to prove. He dreamt of being a successful athlete, and he would run around his neighborhood, jumping, bouncing, flipping, doing all kinds of daredevil antics, backed by a fiery desire to be, quote, the best. At something. At age 13, Kurt caught a practice section of the Miami-Dade Junior College gymnastic team, and the young man found himself fascinated. He kept showing up to watch athletes practice, and then, from his vantage point, he would emulate their moves. His activity actually caught the eye of Coach Bruce Davis, who was tipped off by fellow gymnast Erlene Carey, who had spotted Kurt's activity back in his apartment complex and had recommended the coach give the young man a look. Davis told Carey, okay, that's fine. Bring the kid back to our open practice session. And, you know, every, every night the Miami team would hold those and open them up to the neighborhood. Anybody can come in, use the equipment, and they would actually see what the kid could do. Young Kurt came, and Davis was impressed by his seeming natural ability to tumble, although Davis noted that young Thomas seemed to be very angry with himself for not being able to do all of the moves that the other students were performing. Normally, a kid Thomas's age would go on and work with people at his level, but the problem for Kurt was the Miami Central High School did not have a gymnastics program at the time. Enter Don Gutzler. Davis colleague who had approached the high school and offered to coach and put a team together arguing that there was clearly a need citing that thomas and some of the other boys in the neighborhood were indeed interested after some initial resistance a program was created and a newly minted freshman kurt thomas began to properly learn gymnastics there were a few issues however The high school administration didn't really want the program, and they didn't want to give up space in their gymnasium. You know, they had football, they had basketball. You guys go find your own area to practice. What's more, the neighborhood the school was actually located in was too dangerous for the boys to go and practice at, because then they couldn't get home at night. Gutzler, with Davis's blessing, would actually take all of the high school kids over to train at the college facility and take part in the regular college training sessions, and that is where Thomas flourished. Now, there were indeed a few issues. Thomas was hot-headed, opinionated, highly competitive, but he was able to rather quickly master techniques once shown, and then actually proved to make him difficult to coach. He had a bunch of raw potential, and he was unmatched with his dedication. He began to win local and regional tournaments, and based on this, Coach Davis suggested that Thomas should go and look at what some of the national gymnasts were doing, knowing full well that the young man wasn't ready to compete at that level yet, but saw that it would give him an edge to look and see what was actually being done in the sport. He viewed this as a motivational opportunity, and it was. So Thomas would go perform at Nationals, and while there, he would get tips and pointers from five-time Olympic national team coach Abby Grossfeld. At this point in time, Thomas was only 15 years old, but he looked like he was 11. He ended up coming in dead last at Nationals, but on the way back, Thomas announced that he would go back again, and this time he would win. He worked hard, kept training, and he went to other competitions. He took third in the Junior Olympics held in Spokane, Washington. By the time he hit his junior year in high school in 1973, Thomas had gone to the Nationals for the Junior Olympics held in Michigan. He took first there. He got himself a scholarship next year to Indiana State University, which allowed him to compete on their gymnastics team. And in the time he was there, he would go on to win the NCAA championship. In 1976, Thomas found himself living his dream. He was an official participant on the American team for the Summer Olympics to be held in Montreal. Now, I have to interrupt this to explain something to you. In the post-World War II era, the start of the Cold War, the Olympics and the World National Games were viewed as proxies, you know, ways that Western capitalism and Eastern communism could ideologically duke it out without actually firing a shot through the non-ideological use of sport. And since the ending of the Second World War, the Soviets, at least in the sport of gymnastics, had no equal. Sure, the Japanese would make a good run and often come in second to their first, but the unassailable fact was, for a good 30-year period, the United States couldn't hold a candle with their athletes for gymnastics. In layman's terms, they whipped our monkey asses. Thomas arrives at the 76 Olympics all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And unfortunately, he didn't even place. No, it would just be Peter Corman of the U.S. men's team that would... Eek out of bronze for the US on the floor exercises, with gold and silver going to Soviet athletes Nikolai Andrianov and Vladimir Marchenko, respectively. Andrianov would walk away with four golds that year and two silvers. 1976 would also prove to be the year that Nadia Komenic swept three golds and a silver for the Soviet satellite nation of Romania, capturing the eyes of the world with her perfect score of ten all at the age of 14. Stinging from his Olympic performance, but vowing to move ahead, Thomas moved on to participate in the 1978 World Championships held in Strasbourg, France. It was a new era, and in 78, it was the first year that video replay was being used by the judges to determine disputes. Thomas actually was feeling ill when he stepped out onto the floor in October of 1978, Thinking that he was dealing with the effects of the flu, but when an aging, <clears throat> see twenty-six-year-old Soviet gymnast Nikolai Andrianov made a slight error, the young man snapped into focus. This was his time to shine.
0: This is the moment for Kurt Thomas and for American gymnastics, perhaps. In conversations, too, he's told me that he dreamed about this. Now let's watch his mount. It's the most difficult part of his routine. A one and a half twisting, one and a half front somersault. All right. Okay, beautiful start. Boy, that was so important. No problem. No problem. Come on, baby. Keep cooking. Boy, the kind of poise that takes. Now there's his strength hold. And his press to a handstand. That's what Andrianov left out of his routine. Three straight performances. Double back. Boy. Boy, oh, he's laying it in. Now watch this. It's Thomas Flair on the floor. You think they're paying attention in Terre Haute, Indiana? Oh, The crowd loves him. Listen to the reaction. My God, Jim, if this kid comes home with a gold medal, that's what it looks like right now. Unless there's a big mistake. He needs to hit a double twister. That's all he needs. Now nail it. Kurt Thomas! Maybe a gold medal. All right, America, you got him. It. it sure looks like it. He's, He's, done done it. He's done it. He's done it. He's done it. 9-9. All right, baby. Congratulations, Kurt Thomas. The first American, male or female, ever to win a gold in these championships.
2: American had taken gold in gymnastics. The following year, he returned, and in 1979 Thomas set another record, being the first American to take the most medals in a single competition, coming home with six in total. His record would hold for the next 39 years, that is, until Simone Biles finally broke it in 2018, becoming the first American to win a medal on every single event Naturally, one would think that Thomas would be living it up, but real-world politics would intrude upon his athletic aspirations. In a demonstration of protest towards the Soviet-backed invasion of Afghanistan, the United States boycotted and refused to send teams to participate in the 1980 Olympics. And thus, Thomas found himself unable to compete in the Summer Games at Moscow even though he was viewed as the favorite to take home the gold. He instead took endorsements, did some professional competitions, and then, unfortunately for him, when the 1984 Summer Games in Los Angeles came around, Thomas had waived his amateur status. Thus, he was not allowed to compete. You need to understand that rule was in place, but was officially waived for the 1992 Olympics. Still talented and needing a paycheck, Thomas opened himself up to other opportunities. And that's exactly when Hollywood came calling. Thomas found himself being scouted by one of the original producers of the film Enter the Dragon. You see, they had reached out to him to see if he would be interested in making films after they saw Thomas appear in a commercial and they thought they would have potential to have another athletic action star on their hands, as they had previously seen in Bruce Lee. Never mind the fact that Thomas was, again, a gymnast and not a martial artist. Canon Films at the time was in the market to keep cranking out action films, and at this point of the pop culture cycle, their ninja films were all the rage. Armed with the rights to the 1957 novel by Dan Tyler Moore entitled The Terrible Game, the plan was to update the still very Cold War-centered story and swap out the novel's howitzer gun emplacement with a more Reagan-era Star Wars satellite listening station. And thus, they would throw this hot young gymnast, building on his persona of pure athleticism and noting that by teaching him some basic karate moves, they could market this film as a wholly unique form of martial art. In short, Jim Kata. Was it dumb? Yeah. But as a film pitch, totally plausible for the day. And not a half-bad idea. Canon would put up $4 million to get the film rolling, and it would be distributed by MGM. They hired veteran director Robert Klaus to helm the film. What could go wrong? Having already secured a real Olympic athlete to play the role of an athlete-turned-government agent, Cannon needed to, quote, bring the sizzle. So what do Golan and Globus do? Well. They reach out to the Philippine-born Playboy model Techi Agbayani, who at this point, her claim to fame was literally being the first Filipino woman to appear in said magazine in 1982. She was chosen to play Princess Rubali, an ally and love interest for Kurt's character. Actor Richard Norton was chosen to play the villainous Commander Zemir, and the role of the Khan fell to veteran character actor Buck Cartelan. Some of you may remember him from his work on Planet of the Apes, and then later from the 1976 TV series Monster Squad. Leads selected, it was off to the beautiful and scenic Yugoslavia to stand in hard for the fictional nation of Parmistan which was supposed to be located in the Hindu Kush region of the Middle East... well, Middle East South Central Asia, according to maps of the day. If you ask Thomas, he did every stunt himself on this picture, save for one. During the alley fight scene, uh, a stuntman was used to replace Thomas, as the stones were wet and Thomas was deemed too valuable to perform a jump off of wet cement. He also complained about his infamous pommelhort feist scene, uh, eventually demanding that they add some faux rebar pommels onto the concrete block because when he was trying to do his flare kicks, holding himself up on just a block alone was hurting his wrists. According to Thomas, the Village of the Dam scenes, those extras, were actually loaned out to production from a local insane asylum in Yugoslavia. They didn't pay the people that were loaned out to them, but They instead gave them provisions of alcohol and access to the buffet for the day. I would say, not bad, huh? Alright, all this aside, you've been ever so patient with me on this. So how about it? Let's just move on to that trailer.
0: His name, Kurt Thomas. His title, three-time world gymnastics champion. His assignment... A secret mission for the United States government, his only weapon, himself. And that's all he needs. Combine the discipline, the timing, and the power of gymnastics with the explosive force of karate, and a new all-powerful martial art is born, Gymkata. Kirk Thomas becomes Jonathan Cabot. He must penetrate a mountain fortress to compete in an ancient savage ritual. They call it the game. But nobody wins. And nobody lives. Until now. When gymnastics and karate are fused, the combustion becomes an explosion. And a new kind of martial arts superhero is born. Jim Kata.
3: You know, keeping up with
2: what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than it's worth. The news can be
3: scary and make you want to scream. Or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods podcast. It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection of stories that slip through the cracks
2: of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world, one story at a time. We open on the American agent Colonel Cabot, as played by Eric Lawson, who's being hunted down and seemingly killed by the hulking Commander Zamir, as played by Richard Norton. Apparently in some sort of sanctioned human hunt, we then cut to a young Jonathan Cabot, as played by Kurt Thomas, the colonel's gymnast son, who's being contacted by the Special Intelligence Agency, or SIA, to perform a mission for his country. You see, it's the height of the Cold War, and the United States is trying to ramp up its Star Wars program with more satellite listening stations built in neighboring countries. Well, there happens to be a little country known as Parmistan, supposedly bordering afghanistan a country who forces outsiders to participate in a little activity they call the game
1: direct military action is out of style my friend finesse but there is one chance for one man anyone who enters parmesan must play the game if he wins he's allowed his life and one request and if he loses Look, how do we know somebody else hasn't already gone in there and won the game? No outsider has won the game in over 900 years. What we do know is that other countries are training their athletes right now. A lot of people want that one request.
2: So, if you win the game, you live. And you get a wish. Got it. And with no outsiders having won the event for over 900 years, this seems just like the perfect time for the U.S. to send in an agent, have him compete in the game, and then make a wish that the United States government can build a satellite listening station there. That sounds great. After all, early warning detection is a great way to know that you're about to be annihilated by an ICBM just slightly faster than your neighbor. Got it. Cabot is initially reluctant to take any of this seriously. That is, until he learns that his father tried and failed to compete at the game. And so he agrees. He will have two months to train, and so he's whisked away to a remote location where he meets the beautiful Princess Rubali of Parmistan, who wants to help Americans and thwart the plans of the evil Commander Zemir, who wants to steer the Khan into working with the Soviets. Between the princess, a martial arts and a tactical instructor, lots and lots of hand walking. Young John is getting really good at uh uh.
1: You know, one of the problems that you've got to face is being able to distill the essence of what you've learned. It's a subtle blend of the martial arts of the East, and the fighting skills of the West. You know, karate and your own special gymnastics.
2: After wooing the princess, which seems to be a part of the training montage, enough time has passed, and John and Rubelai end up traveling to the fictional port of Karabal, a town on the Caspian Sea, to await their transport to get into Parmistan. It is there that John is attacked and the princess is kidnapped, but of course, John has her rescued from a band of terrorists in fairly short order. But... Wouldn't you know, beating up bad guys in an alley that just happens to come with its own set of horizontal bars across it? That's just perfect for lots of looping face kicks. They eventually find themselves to be betrayed by their contact when they return to the designated safe house, and they're only saved when SIA agents show up and shoot their would-be assassin. The duo then set out on the river to stealthily cross into Parmistan by boat. Unfortunately, they're met on the shore by a group of ninjas—yes, you heard me—and Cabot is knocked unconscious. Cabot awakens in an area with other foreigners and fellow competitors. Howe, Paley, Gomez, and Thorg—respectively played by Edward Bell, John Barrett, Conan Lee, and Bob Schott— each have their own reasons for entering the nation. With the exception of Thorg, the other men all wish each other no ill will. Cabot gets briefed that Zamer is a traitor and that he is planning a coup, and then he can openly deal with the USSR once he is running the country. They're taken to have an audience with the Khan, as played by Buck Cartellan, and in his court, it's where they're told about the game.
1: First challenge is a three-mile run across the swamp to the second obstacle, a two-hundred-foot rope climb. From there. It is but a half mile to the gorge. The fourth part is to enter the river that will lead you, dead or alive, to the high forest. If successful, you will enter the village of the dam. Surviving this, there is the final five-mile run through the swamp again. It is not all at great risk. It is also a test of endurance, as you will see. And remember, instinct must carry you as well. This is obvious here, but on land itself it might be easy to get lost. If you take a wrong turn. There will be judges to show the way. There can be no mistakes. Anyone trying to avoid an obstacle will be instantly killed. If you'll excuse me now, gentlemen, I must go play king for my people.
2: After a night of feasting and posturing, the men wake to compete. From the start, Zamir is cheating, and the Khan openly yells at him to wait, please, play fair, but Zamir ignores the man. Later, the princess and the Khan are locked away in their chambers, using the excuse of outside threats for their safety as the reason that Zamir's loyal troops need to take control of the palace. Zamir himself chases after the contestants, shooting at them with arrows, burning the ropes they climb, chopping the ropes that are connecting them to the other side of the gorge, and so on. Finally, after a bunch of kills and attrition, it is only Thorg and Cabot that are left alive. The two make it to the stretch of the course that has them travel through a village that is named the Village of the Damned, a town full of insane and violent people. Thorg finds himself swarmed, but seems to get away, and Cabot is left to fight off a crowd of attackers by utilizing a broken cement block, one that just happens to have two pommels attached to it, and he gets to deliver a most devastating pommel horse fight scene that has ever been committed to celluloid, and I dare you to name one better. Cabot does give them the what-for, but he's still forced to flee and finds himself trapped in a tight alleyway. He is then pulled to safety up onto the rooftops by a mysterious ninja who takes off his mask and reveals himself to be none other than Colonel Cabot, John's lost father. Dad! My God!
0: I knew you'd get here, Jonathan. I don't know it's real It's true enough. It was a nightmare in hell. Come on, we can drop over the wall from here. Come on.
2: With logic that makes absolutely no sense, we learn that the colonel was not executed after all, that he was for some reason spared by the warriors, and then he joined their ranks? So, like, he's been helping kill other competitors too this entire time? Okay, I guess. The reunion is short-lived, and during a hug, good old Dad ends up taking an arrow to the back. Telling his boy Johnny to go and win, he collapses, and the younger Cabot takes off, quickly mounting a horse and riding over some treacherous terrain, jumping a chasm in the process. It's only Zemir who follows him and catches up to John, right when the young man is ambushed by Thorg. Only to have the Swedish death machine take an arrow directly to his chest, delivered by Zamir. Johnny ends up deciding he's through running and he squares off against the commander, getting his face punched into custard for a while, trying to fight him head on. It's only halfway through the fight when Johnny realizes he must harness that power of his unique Jim and use some of his more flare filled moves to grapple, somersault, over and around until he can take down his giant foe for good. He makes his way to the finish line where the Khan and the Princess are just finishing up their weird B-story arc of taking the palace back to greet the young American as well as a crowd of cheering people. Dad also comes trotting into town on a horse, still sporting an arrow out of his back, but hey, he's alive and well. And we end with a classic freeze frame on Johnny and a postscript that tells us, in 1985, the first early warning Earth station was placed in Parmastan for the U.S. Star Wars defense program. We fade to black. How inspiring! So where do we even begin? I mean you have the sheer manic lunacy right off the bat with this story The plot is a solid C That's perfect for a good Paul B movie hands down. No, it's actually The part that becomes crazy for me is all the weirdness that was injected into this production by the good folks at Canon for example you know, if Zamir intended to win the hand of the princess, and then he would take over the country, why does he need to launch a coup? Why does this country, supposedly next to Afghanistan, have an army of ninjas, even though the entire cultural and motif and aesthetic of the local people is very Middle Eastern inspired? It just doesn't work. And it was done to try to cash in on the very popular ninja craze in Western culture at the time. I get it. Who cares if it makes sense? The film plays out like a very sanitized version of the aforementioned 1982 turkey shoot. But instead of having inmates being hunted by a group of, you know, sadistic thrill seekers, we now have contestants being pursued by a small army with its general at its head over a set of obstacle course routes that are marked with ninja flagmen and markers that let the contestants know how far they've made it before they're actually going to die. It leads one to wonder, who actually thought of this game, and who would think this is a good way to build relations with outside entities? Or for that matter, how could you even have diplomatic relations with the outside world? Still, the film is not without a certain atmospheric charm. Those Village of the Dam scenes are genuinely creepy. With all the strange laughter, the terrifying man who attacks Cabot and then gets himself stuck in a door... And then he decides to lop off his own arm in a fit of madness? That is, like, very disquieting. Then of course, if you're me, the focus on that one terrifying man who seems to be sporting a full face mask that's on the back of his head. And since it's done just realistically enough, the viewer is not sure to interpret what they're seeing on the screen. Am I to believe there's a physically deformed person who has two faces for real? Or is this just a really crazy person wearing a very off-putting mask on his head backwards? Either way, it's the stuff of nightmare fuel. How about Kurt's fighting style? I mean, don't get me wrong. His flips, jumps, round-offs during the very fight scenes that he's in are actually very impressive. And I'm sure getting kicked in the face would hurt and stuff. It's just not very menacing to watch. Which is exactly why this film checks the box as being unintentional comedy. Since they're playing the material straight, the concept itself has its inner silliness brought out, which makes it hard to imagine anyone thinking this would work seriously. The fact that only he seems to be able to fight where makeshift gym equipment exists seems to be more of a limitation than a strength of a new hybrid of martial arts. I would also like to point out the absurdity of showing a bunch of gear that Cabot is going to, quote, take with him to have at his disposal. It's all this James Bond-style tech. And he never takes it with him, and he never uses it in the film. So it makes one wonder, why would you have this cool scene? And does that mean there's a bunch of really neat deleted scenes that we never got to that shows Cabot actually using all this tech to make crazy kills? You know, that razor launcher is kind of pretty badass, or is this just the fact that they needed filler material and they filmed the scene to pad out the runtime? The world, sadly, may never know. As an actor, I will say this, Thomas is okay at best. The saving grace is he actually doesn't have to say much here, which is good, because the few times he does have dialogue, he comes off as being a little stiff and wooden. There's a serious lack of chemistry between him and Tekki Agbayani, and still, in spite of all of those limitations, I would argue that this film is worthy of your time. Mainly because it's pure B-movie fare, attempting to prop itself up as something more. And in that process, it gives you, the viewer, this goofy sense of fun, a guilty pleasure that's quite enjoyable, provided you walk into this film with... You know, few expectations. I've at least given you my opinion there. But you know, here's the beautiful thing not everyone sees these films as I do. And that's okay, they're entitled to their opinions. And that's exactly why we have sidecar segments. Joining us today in the sidecar is our dear friend, the Velocipeter peter himself, Mr. Peter Martin, host of the Veloci-Podcast and Ninja News Japan, ready to share his opinions and feelings on such an interesting film as we have here today. That being said, what do you got for
3: us now, Peter? One of the things I like to do is after I've seen a movie that is not going to be well-received critically, and whether it has or not is actually irrelevant is think about in the early planning stages of the film. What were they looking at? Like, what did they see? What did they have? What was their vision? Gymkata is one of those movies. It's really interesting because on paper, Gymkata actually seems like a pretty good idea. We have an Olympic athlete, a gymnast, very physically capable. He wants to make the jump into film. All right. He can do a lot of stunts, he can do a lot of neat things, he can flip, he can do all the things that, honestly, a lot of our action stars wouldn't be able to do. So let's create a movie for him in the action genre. Also, on paper, seems like a pretty good idea. We'll have him run around, he'll flip over people, he'll jump things, he'll swing around and kick. Then you get into the reality of the situation, where you actually have this guy on set and you're trying to do stuff with him. He's supposed to have gone through very intense physical training for martial arts. And I can tell you, he's not really capable of throwing a kick. And one of the things they didn't look at when hiring a gymnast to be an action hero was how a gymnast runs. Because I didn't realize that at least this gymnast, the way he runs is very distracting. He runs a lot like he's wearing a diaper, and that diaper is not completely empty. So I understand how and why this movie got made, because honestly, if you write down all the elements of the film, it's actually a pretty good idea, and at the time when it came out, it basically fit perfectly. Then Chris asked me to look at the movie, and I sit down and I look at the movie, and of course, the first thing I do is look for the most minute detail, which is going to annoy me for the rest of the evening, that I can't let go. And it comes at this scene right here.
1: A Star Wars satellite station inside Parmistan could monitor all the other satellites around the world. It would be the ultimate early warning system in case of nuclear attack. Now, in our hands, such a system could save millions of lives. But in the wrong hands.
3: It could destroy an entire
1: nation. Exactly. But there is one chance for one man. Anyone who enters Pakistan... Must play the game. If he wins, he's allowed his life and one request. And if he loses... Look, how do we know somebody else
3: hasn't already gone in there and won the game?
1: No outsider has won the game in over 900 years.
3: So like every film, we have to take the premise the way they've presented to us. There is a game that is played, and apparently everyone who tries to enter this country must win the game, or they die. This has incredible geopolitical consequences. Because the country of Palmerston apparently has never done any import or export activities. Its GDP and survival is completely internal, with no access to the outside world. Because in order to import or export something sooner or later someone's going to have to come into the country and that someone's going to have to win the game and apparently we just learned that no one's ever won the game in the last 900 years i get what they're trying to do they want to say the game's hard and no one ever wins the game but by saying anyone who enters parmistan must play the game means that nothing has happened inside parmistan for the last 900 years so their technology would be 900 years old I did notice that they're wearing fairly modern ninja costumes for their soldiers, but there is a secondary issue in that our hero falls in love with the princess. And she doesn't look like all the Eastern Europeans in the country of Parmistan. She is more of a island ilk, if you will. And they say, quite directly, her mother was Indonesian. The problem is, her mother must have entered the country and her mother would have had to won the game to survive, which means her mother won the game, but no outsider has won the game in over 900 years, which means that the princess's mother was either 900 years old when she had a baby, or the queen won the game 900 years ago and then had a baby right away, which makes the princess 900 years old. So our hero now, logically, is dating Yoda. So what they've created is a small logical fallacy that, I could not forgive, and I could not let go. I did spend the rest of the night drinking rum and trying to think of a way to get out of this logical problem that was created by the film. How could the mother enter the country and win the game if no outsider has won the game for 900 years, unless, of course, she is over 900 years old, or she was of normal age and had a baby, and that baby has somehow survived for 900 years. I was thinking about the king, Went to Indonesia, and that's where he met her, and they had the baby. But then he brought the baby back, and then the baby has to play the game. Did the baby win the game? But that's still technically an outsider, which means they haven't won the game, because the game hasn't been won by an outsider for 900 years. But she is the princess, so maybe she is an insider, and she did win the game? I don't know. But the implication suddenly is that a baby has won this game. And that's when I decided maybe I'd had enough to drink.
2: First, I have to agree with Peter's assessment, Thomas as a physical specimen is indeed phenomenal, but he does run like a man who is, well, with those bounding strides of his, like he's about to launch into a tumbling routine, which, when viewed from a distance shot, does, as Peter aptly pointed out, make him look like he's bounding around in an effort. Well, using that full diaper analogy, trying to keep things together. It's a rather strange gait to observe on a human being. Peter also hit the head on the concept that I was just dancing around prior. The geopolitics of Parmistan are rather untenable in a modern story. If this was a story set hundreds of years ago, some sort of medieval or ancient setting, the concept would have felt more logical that there is such a cloistered nation But in a modern world, as Peter points out, how would this ever work? What's more, piggybacking on his idea, how could Zamir be in contact with Soviet forces and dealing with Soviet agents if outside forces are made to play the game and not interact with members of government? Which would seemingly include diplomats and state agents. That's a rather large plot hole. As far as the princess and her not-seen mother, yes, that's somewhat of a problem for people stopping to think about the film. I would, in theory, just write it off as lazy writing, which the good folks at Canon are well known for, and then reach over to partake in some of that rum Peter was discussing. All that said, I must say, thank you, Peter. Those were good points all around. So how was this film received? Released May 3rd, 1985, Jim Cotta opened 10th place at the box office, against other films like Code of Silence, Just One of the Guys, that's a future episode for sure, Gotcha, and Police Academy 2. Thomas's acting was panned, and he ended up being nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst New Star. The film quickly left the theaters, but during its run, it did end up making $5.7 million. And during that time, it would gain far more traction in the coming years with repeated showings on HBO and video rentals. Its poor acting, silly concept, and unintentional comedy have turned it into a cult film. And now, 35 years on, it repeatedly shows up in listings for worst films ever made. I would argue, no, it's not. And it has routinely been championed, as we are doing so here, as being a goofy good time, for those at least who are in on the joke. As of this recording, the film is still only sporting a 17% rating amongst critics on Rotten Tomatoes, whereas the audience averages have it pegged out with a score of 40%, which to me means more people need to see this picture. It's too goofy, too fun, and such a time capsule of Cold War paranoia. I think in another 20 years, this film is really going to come into its own as a lost gem, highlighted by the decade that spawned it so well. So, I gotta say, whatever became of our star? Well, this film would remain Thomas's one and only real acting credit. Post-Gymkata, Thomas worked for a time as a sports commentator. He then began to work to get himself back into competition shape starting in 1989, where he worked very hard to try to qualify for the 1992 Olympics, arguing that this was his shot. Finally, at age 36, an age where his fellow competitors were getting ready to retire, he was going to try once more to go for the gold.
1: Uh, gymnast in 46 years to win a gold medal in world competition, and I did step up on there. And there was a Soviet to my left and a Japanese to my right, and I was on the top, and my flag was was raised, and I sang the national anthem. And I remember that, and I know what that's like. And yes, there is that empty hole in my career where I didn't get to the Olympic Games and win a medal. For Kirk Thomas, there's, there's a reason of a need, a need of fulfillment, something, at least if I give it my all now. With this body that I have and this talent that I have, if I don't try this now, I'm nuts.
2: Unfortunately, it was not meant to be. Thomas fell short of earning his way into the one of the six spots for the men's Olympic team in 1992, Deciding to hang it up, Thomas made the natural transition into coaching. In 1996, he married dancer and gymnastic routine coordinator Rebecca Jones, and together they raised two children and opened the Kurt Thomas Gymnastics Training Center in Frisco, Texas. Retirement had mellowed him, and his family and teaching brought him a level of happiness and stability he had not known before. Rivalries he had had with former team members solidified into lifelong friendships, including that which was Bart Connor, who himself had ended up marrying Nadia Comaneci. Kurt and him enjoyed a lot of time together. In 2003, Thomas was inducted into the International Gymnastic Hall of Fame. And seriously, why shouldn't he be? The guy has three, count them, Three different gymnastic moves named for him, and one of them is so dangerous it's not even allowed to be performed anymore. Seriously, the Thomas Salto, a backward somersault with a one and a half twist to land in a backward layout, which comes with added incredible risk. If not properly executed, instead of landing in a straight prone position on one's back, the athlete will be landing on their exposed neck. The maneuver was since banned, particularly after Soviet gymnast Elena Mokina attempted and grievously failed to execute it properly, resulting in her becoming a quadriplegic. you got to give props to that. Thomas himself in 2015 reflected on the film in an interview with the Bristol Bad Film Club, noting that when he was making the film, he was all rather bemused by the whole ordeal. He didn't have a background in martial arts, and he personally thought that director Robert Klaus may have been a little past his prime. But he thought the fight scenes on the film came out looking pretty decent. And he was pleased that the film had a dedicated cult following. And at the time of the interview, he hadn't seen it in its entirety for almost a decade. But he did admit he would catch himself whenever it came on, chuckling that it was often at 3 or 4 in the morning. But again, it was good to be involved in something that people actually enjoyed. And when you hear that, it makes you think that Kurt Thomas was actually a decent guy. Sadly, my story does have a bit of a tragic ending. You see, on May 24th, 2020, Kurt Thomas suffered a tear in his basilar artery in his brain stem. That's the artery that supplies the brain with oxygenated blood. Often, those who survive the initial massive stroke that comes from this suffer from locked-in syndrome. It's the horrible horrible result where one can't communicate verbally or move but they have complete consciousness and understanding on what's going on around them Thomas himself ended up passing away due to complications of this stroke on June 5th 2020 surrounded by his family at the age of 64 a life taken far too young Rest in peace, good sir, and thank you for making this film. We here at the LSCE would like to let you know that we absolutely enjoyed it. The version of Jim Cotta screened here at the LSCE was the Warner Brothers 2007 DVD release. And while it comes with pretty bare bones offerings, It just is the film and the trailer. It can still be found today on Amazon for the very reasonable price of $10.49, which we would argue is well worth it for all the strange fighting action. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where or who to buy content from. We just think it's important these days to continue to support physical media so that the artists and the rights holders continue to keep releasing all that great content that we know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? Getting more of what you love? Besides, this film is strange, funny, and fun. And it isn't something that we all get to see on a daily basis. And don't you need more of that in your lives during these troubling times? So what are you waiting for? Get out there, get yourself a copy today. Tell them Chris sent you. So that's gonna wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to extend again a special thank you to our sidecar guest, Mr. Peter Martin, the Velosa peter himself, for joining us here today. If you enjoyed his breakdown, and why wouldn't you, you can, of course, find him speaking on a host of other topics on Ninja News Japan or on the Velosa podcast itself. Please support our friends, give him a listen and a like, or a review if you could. We would appreciate it greatly. We hope you will tune in again. If you like us, please give us a favorable review, subscribe, find us on Apple Podcasts, swing by and check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We're also featured on Podchaser, that's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there, give us a follow, and a review if you could, please. And hey, feel free to like the lists that we're a part of, give us a boost in the rankings. More reviews and increased likes make us more searchable, and then we can share our content with more people. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things. Please email us at Experience at gmail.com If you would like to even be more personal or wish to contribute a segment on the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, Please stay healthy, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody.